Gone are the days of knights and chivalry, and yet that hasn't changed God's vision of you as a man of valor. Today, pornography is a simple mouse click away, and sexual addiction is at an epidemic level. Dr. Mark Laser is an internationally known author and speaker, the leading Christian authority on sexual addiction, and the host of Faithful and True's new online radio production, The Men of Valor Program. Here now is Dr. Mark Laser. Welcome to the Men of Valor program. I'm your co-host, Randy Everett, and once again this week, we are pleased uh, to be joined by the host of the show, Dr. Mark Laser. Thanks uh, to all of you who have uh, been listening, and thanks to all of you who've been uh, writing in questions. And today, uh, Randy, we're going to try to deal with some questions, are we not? We are, Mark. We've been promising the listeners for the past several weeks that uh, as we have encouraged them to uh, send in their uh, their comments on the show and their questions that may arise uh, after listening to you. Uh, and we thought that today would be a good time to call a timeout and mm-hmm. answer some of these questions we've been receiving. And uh, as you said, we thank the listeners for sending those in. Those are These are important to uh, the growth of the show, and at the same time, we want to be a valuable resource uh, to you uh, with uh, the answers that uh, Mark can provide. Uh, we're going to start today with one that came in, and uh, I think this this is probably... Uh, one of the most common questions that we uh, that we receive, and uh, lately there has been kind of a groundswell uh, from some outside sources that are even questioning the validity of sexual addiction and uh, is it actually an addiction? And if it is an addiction, uh, Mark, is there really a cure? You know, uh, I think things go in cycles, Randy. Uh, this is not a new thing. Uh, there's really kind of a fascinating story about that. Uh, one of the surprises of my life back in the 90s, actually, was that uh, I got an email from Playboy magazine, uh, from their editorial offices of Playboy magazine at their offices in Chicago. And uh you know, obviously, since 1987, I haven't looked at any of that material, so uh, it was quite a shock to me to get an email from them. But uh, what had happened was that uh, one of their writers had uh, posted an editorial in one of their issues about the fact that sex addiction was not a, a valid psychological concept. It had been uh, invented. Uh, they claimed uh, this editorial claim by the uh, religious right, and uh, they also said that uh, there had been those like Dr. Patrick Carnes, the founder of our field, and I was also listed uh, as people who had invented the concept uh, so that we could make money treating it. And then they invited me uh, to respond to that. So now I had a decision that I want to, you know, be uh, published in any way, shape, or form in Playboy magazine. But I, I checked that out with some of my accountability group, and they said, Mark, if you were trying to uh, get your message out to your target audience, where would you, where here's, would you put it? Here's the number one venue. Yeah. So I can honestly say, Randy, I've, I've never actually seen my response in the actual magazine because, you know, I wouldn't get it or buy it, but, uh, they did print it. And, uh, so I think cyclically it comes up. The reason it's coming up right now is because the American Psychiatric Association is in the final process of getting out the new edition of its diagnostic manual. Uh, since I've been in the field back in the 70s, uh, there have been uh, a number of revisions to their to their diagnostic manual, and they're, they're currently about ready to release uh, 
the uh, fifth edition of that. And one of the things that happens with uh, the psychiatric community is that they they meet for months and years. Uh, they have committees of various psychiatrists. They get together, they discuss diagnoses, and uh, then they come up with the diagnostic criteria for very various mental health disorders. And for the last 25 years, uh, Dr. Kearns and uh, myself and others have been uh, proposing that uh, the diagnosis of sexual addiction be included in the uh, diagnostic manual of the American Psychiatric Association without any success whatsoever. Uh, one of the things that, that I think is fascinating about the process is that it is very politically controlled, so that depending on what psychiatrists are on the uh, diagnosis committee for the various sections of this manual, uh, that has a large uh, uh, weight in terms of you know what gets included and what doesn't get included. One of the fascinating aspects of this also is that uh, when you think about you know medical diagnosis, uh, if you've had pneumonia, they pretty much define that since we knew what pneumonia was hundreds of years ago. Uh, if you have heart disease, we pretty much know what that is. I mean, it's not like diagnoses of those things change, but mental health disorders, the diagnosis of those things has changed quite uh, frequently over the last 30 or 40 years. And... Uh, so there's just you know a way of introduction to say that at the moment with this new uh, uh, version five coming out, uh, I think it's become a, qu a question. There's also been some uh, you know more attention to some uh, popular media types uh, in the last several years that have claimed to be sexual uh, addicts that have gone to uh, treatment and so forth. So you know it does raise the question in the uh, in the popular world out there is you know is this a valid uh, uh, concept or not. I think also, you know, the people that attack the concept, uh, you know, are, you know, people who are, you know, basically thinking that uh, this is, in fact, the religious right that's trying to define sexual addiction, and they're basing it on moral definitions of what is sexual sin and what is not sexual sin. So uh, I think it's a backlash, all of this stuff against uh, the evangelical right in terms of you know some important questions uh, uh, within the, the the broader field of sexuality. So that's all a way of uh, just introducing. Now uh, there has been a groundswell of support uh, out in the psychological community, uh, whether it's secular or Christian, uh, that sexual addiction is a valid concept. And more and more there are research studies that are that are uh, verifying this i think the uh the uh, the most important area of research as to whether or not addiction can uh, sex can be an addiction is the neuroscience community which is showing us of course that the brain produces a certain amount of neurochemicals when the uh the brain is going through the process of sexual arousal and then the question becomes can the brain become neurochemically tolerant or dependent on those neurochemicals that the brain itself produces, like adrenaline, dopamine, oxytocin, and so forth. We've we've covered this a little bit on an earlier show for those listeners that would like to go back to the archives and, and find that. So neuroscience is uh, really one of our best partners right now in validating the fact that uh, uh, even just thinking about sex, masturbating, looking at pornography, all of these things can become incredibly addictive to the brain. We're talking about a brain dependence or a brain tolerance. 
So I think uh, as the years continue to unfold, uh, medical science is, is going to confirm the fact that it's a, a very legitimate diagnosis. And I think eventually it may take another 5, 10, 15 years. I think the American psychiatric uh, community will get on board with this. Well, as you've mentioned for us in, in previous shows, um, sex addiction is uh, right now where alcoholism was roughly 40 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, we've been saying that now for a long time. We've been saying that, you know, since the late 80s, uh, that, uh, you know, sex addiction is 25 to, you know, 30 or 40 years behind uh, Alcoholics uh, uh, Anonymous. And uh, there's some truth to that. And there's also the fact that it's a it's a somewhat harder comparison to make, really, when you think about the fact that with alcoholism, uh, you ingest something. You make a decision to uh, take a drink or use a drug. And with sex addiction, you don't necessarily need to walk into a bar or a liquor store or uh, you know have, a, have an outside-of-yourself supply. With sex addiction, it's more of an internal, uh, internally produced neurochemistry. Uh, I think the other difference is that sexuality is something that God put in the brain uh, so that we as human beings will uh, produce offspring. Uh, in, in Genesis, God said, be fruitful and multiply. So we're talking about uh, a natural desire that we all have to be sexual in the brain. So that makes it a harder comparison to alcoholism in the sense that God did not put in our brain a natural desire for alcohol. You know? But doesn't this neurochemistry uh, topic that uh, you are so well-versed in and have referenced on earlier shows, um, doesn't that give great kind of uh, qualification to the fact that um, someone who views pornography uh, and is excited by it and the dopamine that is uh, released into the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, like other addictions, uh, as time goes on, they need a higher, in, in order to reach right. uh, a, uh, a point of, of, uh, of excitement or whatever you want to call that, um, it takes more extreme levels of pornography to, mm-hmm. uh, to get the same result. Yeah, that's basically one of the criteria for the diagnosis of sexual addiction, that over time it will escalate in intensity, frequency, uh, the nature of the activity that you're doing. It could even be that you know, you're know you uh, getting increasingly more uh, dangerous even uh, forms of pornography. We could go on with that, but one of the criteria for anything to be an addiction is that you're going to need more of it over time to achieve the same effect, and that could be even just sexual thoughts or various different kinds of uh, pornography or whatever it is, and certainly sexual activity. So one of the ways that I like to kind of leave this question is that what is the purpose of a diagnosis uh, uh, of anything? And the purpose of a diagnosis is to define the healing uh, journey that's possible. So a number of years ago, when I was having some irregular heartbeats, uh, I went to see a cardiologist and they diagnosed the fact that I had uh, a condition called atrial fib- uh, fibrillation, or AFib for short. And uh, so it didn't take very long. It didn't take very many medical tests to uh, confirm that. You can actually even take your pulse and know that you're in AFib. And basically what it told uh, the cardiologist is, you know, what kind of either medication or procedure I would need to try to deal with that. 
And by the grace of God, uh, I was able to go to one of our local well-established hospitals, get a very minor procedure done, and I haven't struggled with that at all since. Um, Now, so the purpose of a diagnosis is to tell doctors or professionals how to treat it so that uh, the the symptoms of it go away, the problems with it go away, and, uh, you know, we can uh, achieve a healing journey. So the second half of our listeners' question then is, uh, since you have done a great job of, you know, showing us that uh, this is indeed an addiction, the second half of his question was, is there a cure? Well, you know, that this has been one of the most hotly debated uh, questions, I think, in the community ever since I've been in it for now over 25 years, almost 26 now. Um uh, in my first book, Healing the Wounds of Sexual Addiction, in, my, in the conclusion to that book, I, I uh, address this question. Um, and, you know, even when I'm out there in the, uh, in the Christian world, I, I hear a lot of uh, men say, uh, we've, we've had a friend visiting us from China who's hoping to carry the message of uh, uh, sexual addiction recovery faithful and true to uh, mainland China. And even he says uh, that uh, I used to be a sex addict. And uh, I think even uh, this man would uh, agree, though, that he's still a man. He still lives in uh, a very sexually saturated culture. And uh, that even though he would say he's been uh, cured or delivered, that's another word we like to use in the Christian community from sexual addiction, that it's still something, you know, in his brain that if he were, were not careful, he'd be right back into it pretty quickly. Isn't that along the line of the well-established age-old uh, alcoholics terminology of I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic? I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm only one drink away from a relapse. You know, that kind of thing. So, I, well, you know, we certainly here at Faithful and True believe that when uh, men come to our workshops, when uh, they come to us for help, you know, we can get them free of this uh, sexual acting out. Uh, but what does freedom mean for any of us? Uh, uh, if I say that I'm going to go on a diet, does it mean that, uh, okay, now that I lose weight, am I, am I, am I free of any uh, temptation to overeat uh, ever again? Well, probably not. Uh, there again, sexuality is a normal desire in the brain, and we live in a sexually saturated culture. So I do think that... Uh, while it's possible, and we do say that here at Faithful and True, it's possible to be free of sexual sin for the rest of your life. Um, we also would accept the possibility that uh, sexuality is a normal part of our brain. We live in a very sexually saturated culture. So we need to still be careful, be on guard, be accountable, do all the things that we talk about doing. Uh, so are you ever cured? Uh I don't really think you're cured because if we said we were cured, we'd be saying in a way that we're still not participate, participating in human nature. Right, right. Uh, one of the ways I look at it is, uh, and I, this is the part that I talk about, this is a comparison that I make in my, uh, in my book. Uh, to me, it's a lot like being um, a diabetic, and I am a diabetic, and I have been now for over 35 years. Uh, to this point in time, uh, there is no cure for diabetes. There, there are a number of cures on the horizon. I don't think we're very far off from being able to completely reverse it. Uh, I hope 
really in my life to not die a diabetic. Uh, however, uh, at this point, there's no cure. So what do I do on a daily basis? I manage it. I take insulin. I try to watch my diet. I exercise. Uh, I do a number of other things to uh, manage my blood sugar level. Uh, so I think my sexual addiction is uh, is the same. Uh, uh, while on the one hand, uh, there's just really no cure for it, because if there was a cure, we'd have to eradicate from the brain all inappropriate sexual thought. That's probably not going to happen for anybody. Uh, so what are we left with? Well, like a diabetic, uh, we're left with managing those inappropriate sexual thoughts. Now, I believe that's entirely possible for the rest of your life. It's it's entirely possible to, to lead a sexually sin-free life. Uh, but it is a matter of management. You know, it's it's managing... The possibility that uh, you know we're all only you know one inappropriate thought away from uh, getting back into our addiction seems to be a close tie to other addictions, though. As you're mentioning, uh, your control of your eating habits because of the diabetes. Yeah. Uh, the same thing with an alcoholic managing the fact that he knows that he can't have alcohol. So all of these addictions, whether it be sex addiction, alcoholism, or overeating, it does take a concerted you know, cerebral effort right. to, to manage your lifestyle. Right. I think uh, that's, that's one of the keys. Uh, it, you know, there's, there's rarely an hour that goes by in my life when I'm not thinking about my blood sugar, you know, and what uh, the status of it is and how I'm doing and what I need to eat or not eat or how much insulin I need to take. Uh, and, and really in some ways the same is true for, uh, the fact that I struggled with sex addiction over 25 years ago, I would say that, you know, given the fact that I live in our current culture, uh, I'm going to get assaulted on a daily basis with uh, lots of sexual messages. Sure. Uh, you know, from, you know, what uh, other people are wearing out there in the world to the commercials on television to lots of other things. Uh, we were talking before we started recording this morning that, you know, uh, on this particular date and time, uh, you know, the Sports Illustrated issue is out. Swimsuit issue is out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was in Costco down in Boca Raton, Florida last week. And uh, even at Costco, uh, in the checkout line, uh, there it was. So, you know, I didn't ask for it to be there. I didn't uh, choose it. Uh, and yet, as I'm going through the line and seeing it, uh, uh, I'm still going to have to make a decision. Yeah. Uh, I recognize that this is a popular thing. A lot of people are looking at it. Popular media is talking about it. Uh, there, there's, there's all kind of different temptations. One is, you know, do I have to miss something that, you know, half the male world out there is talking about? So it's one thing for me to say as I'm standing there in line at Costco that I'm a recovering sex addict and that I'm, I'm cured. But on the other hand, I'm still going to have to deal with uh, a stimulus. Let's just call it a stimulus. I think the average Christian would call that a temptation. Mm -hmm. uh, what changes over time, Randy, is how easy it is for me to make a healthy choice. I think after 25 years of sobriety, it's much easier for me to make a healthy choice. Uh, and I have a lot of support and history, a lot of accountability that will help me with that. But I still have to make a choice. And do those choices in our current world ever go away? No, they don't. Uh, and I think it's very dangerous for some of our black and white thinking Christian friends to say, I'm cured. 
I'm not sure what that would mean living in our current culture. Does that mean you never experience another temptation? Uh, I don't think so. So, but again, uh, even in talking through it today, you know, we can see that it's a, it's a quite controversial issue about uh, whether there's a cure. But along the lines of giving our listeners hope out there, because yeah. if, if they are struggling with uh, issues of sexual addiction, um, I think that you're one of the glowing examples in your 26th year of sobriety that, yes, you can change your life. Yes, you can learn to manage these impulses. Right. Well, yeah, and, and what I would like the listeners to hear is that, okay, if I'm so successful, what is it that keeps me successful? And that is basically the idea that I am not cured. If I ever got to a point where I thought that I was finished with this, then I think uh, Satan or the power of evil would have me where he wants me. Sure. Because uh, he's going to, uh, you know, interject things in my life that's going to prove to me, <laughs> you know, how silly an idea that really is. So uh, I think those of us men that want to stay free, and I look at it as being free uh, in a very large spiritual sense. But if we're going to stay free, we're still going to need to do all the things that we did to get free in the first place. Well, as you and I suspected before we started today's show and, and we uh, introduced the idea of sharing some of the questions that the listeners have sent to us, I mean, here we are one question into it. Yeah. We, we kind of knew that the, yeah. this was going to really launch us into some uh, some good conversation. Um, as we're nearing the end of today's show, there's one quick uh, additional question that was sent to us that I'd like for you to to address because I'm sure it's on the minds of several men. And that is uh, the question from one of the listeners said, my wife doesn't know about my sexual acting out. Mm -hmm. Do I have to tell her? The answer to that is yes. And the reason for it is a little bit more complicated. And, uh, uh, but the idea here is that uh, one of the criteria for sexual addiction is intimacy disorder, meaning that I don't really know how to have deep intimacy at an emotional or spiritual level with anybody, certainly much less my wife. In fact, it's often the case with intimacy disorder that the person that I'm the most afraid of losing, probably my wife, uh, is, is the person that I may be the least likely to tell the truth to. And the reason is because I have a deep anxiety that if I'm honest about my stuff, uh, she will leave me. She won't like what I'm doing or who I am and she'll leave me. So... I want the listeners to hear that it's anxiety and fear of being all alone that keeps you in silence. If you have a vision, on the other hand, of having a deeper level of intimacy with your spouse and with others, one of the prerequisites for that is to be honest about who you are and what you're feeling. I choose myself not to go through the rest of my life uh, guarding secrets. Uh, secrets you know, send me in all kind of uh, directions uh, that prevent me from connecting at the deepest emotional and spiritual level. Uh, most of the men out there are wondering, you know, if my wife learns about this, you know, she is going to want a divorce and all of that. We find, strangely enough, that that's very often, most often, not the case. Uh, in fact, it's probably the case in less than 2 or 3% of the situations that walk through our door. Interestingly enough, and Debbie would confirm this if she were here, she would say that the average spouse, upon hearing the news of whatever the husband has been doing, over time, she's going to be a lot more uh, concerned about whether he's a truth teller than whether or not he's done some of these sexual things. Uh, 
men who have gone through full disclosure here at our center, uh, according to some unofficial kind of anecdotal research that we've done, uh, and some research that's been confirmed by others out there in our field, uh, it would be true that the men who do full disclosure are probably 97 to 98% likely to stay married. So there is that 2% chance, and we are running a risk that some of the wives will not uh, react to this well. However, if I choose a life of freedom, honesty, and intimacy, then I am going to tell my wife the truth. Now, there is, by the way, on our website, an article on how to do full disclosure, if you want to look at that. Uh, We discuss this, and I'm sure Debbie will be on the show in the future, and we'll discuss a little bit more how to do this. I think one of the things to be aware of, though, is that you probably are going to need some guidance, some help, some third party to be present Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of, if, if you just you know, are listening to this broadcast and you get convicted somehow and you go home and now all of a sudden you dump on your wife, that's probably not a good thing to do. Uh, I think, you know, disclosure is is a matter of very thoughtfully figuring out how to do it in the most loving and helpful way. Well, and just a moment ago, you referenced developing a vision and it was great timing that you mentioned that because our current February uh, newsletter that we call the Recovery Report features an article by you called Developing a Vision. Right. And so if the listeners would like access to that, uh, number one, we invite you to uh, go on our website and click on uh, being uh, added to our mailing list. You will every month in the middle of the month receive our e-newsletter. But uh, on the Faithful and True website right now, under resources, you'll see a tab there for our monthly newsletter. If you click on it, the February 2013 uh, issue has got a very interesting article on developing a vision. Well, one of the interesting things about vision, just real short uh, uh, comment here, Randy, I think short, you know, I've been inaccurate about that before, but you know, when we think about the thoughts in our brain, uh, you know, fantasies are something that's going to lead us into sexual temptation. Vision, on the other hand, will consume our brain with uh, pursuing and following God's calling, plan, and purpose in our life. If we put those kind of visionary thoughts in our brain, it really uses our creativity, productivity, and passion in such a way that it crowds other things out. So, yeah, I would encourage the listeners to go and take a look at that. Uh, I've certainly written about it in other places and other books. So uh, it's not a bad place to stop today to become a man of vision. Whether you consider this problem you're struggling with uh, an addiction or not, I don't care. If there are things in your life you'd like to change, develop a plan for how to do that and uh, a vision for the man that God calls you to be. We'd like to thank you all for listening to us today. Again, this is the Men of Valor program. You've been listening to Dr. Mark Laser, the uh, founder and president of Faithful and True. We'd like to thank Ben Laser. Ben is our uh, engineer and our technical director for the show every week. My name's Randy Everett, your co-host. And uh, Mark, I think we're on to something here. I, I think that uh, next week we're going to continue uh, answering these. Uh, we appreciate and encourage the listeners to continue to send us questions like this today because right. it really lets us know what's on their mind, how you can be most helpful to them uh, as they are hopefully entering their healing journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we will continue to answer some of the questions that have come in. I think that's a great thing. And, uh, don't, you know, it's like, you know, the teacher said back when we were in first grade, there's no stupid questions. There's no bad questions. 
In fact, the more practical questions, I think, uh, we, we want this show to be practical and to help the average man who uh, is out there today trying to figure out what to do next. Thanks again for listening this week. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, take care of yourselves, and uh, we're wishing you many blessings. You've been listening to the Men of Valor program with Dr. Mark Laser. For information about this program or to learn more about Faithful and True, visit us at FaithfulandTrue.com. That's FaithfulandTrue.com.